We're going to be turning again to the Gospel of Mark, uh, like we've been doing for, for over a year together. Uh, today we're going to be talking about citizenship. Citizenship in a kingdom. And uh, as we begin this morning, if you want to turn to Mark chapter uh, 10, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 31. As we're thinking of citizenship, let's see a, a show of hands out there for all of those who are citizens of Canada. All right. Is that everybody here? All right. Well, we're all uh, citizens of Canada. Uh, now, for those of us who are citizens here this morning, how many of us were born outside of Canada? Okay, I'm going to count them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Wow, that's a good percentage of our church here uh, this morning. So, so for those who were born outside of Canada, or maybe you're in the process of becoming a Canadian, was that process of immigration, becoming a citizen, was that kind of a lengthy, hard process? Would you agree? A little bit? Okay. I know you guys are acting Canadian. You're pretty shy up there right now and polite. But Now, when you're applying to become a citizen of Canada, were there a bunch of qualifications that you have to meet before you're going to be officially called a Canadian? Yes, there is. Well, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was curious about the whole process, and, and what I discovered was that becoming a Canadian citizen is not really easy. In fact, it's, it's pretty hard, depending on your circumstance. I looked up uh, what it takes to become a Canadian if you're a skilled worker, right? That means, that means that you're some kind of a professional or a manager of some sort, or you're, maybe you're a trades uh, person. And the first thing that, I, that I, I saw there is that there's a lot of things you need to qualify. You need to prove a lot of things to the government. First of all, you need to prove that you are who you say you are, that you have some kind of valid ID, some kind of proper documentation showing that uh, you're at least 18, ages, 18 years of age or older, uh, that you have no criminal uh, intentions. Uh, they check your background. I know that we've had FBI background checks here uh, as well. Um, you have to prove that you have no severe health issues so that you're not a burden on our health system. Um, you have to prove that you have some kind of uh, secondary or post-secondary uh, education, and it has to meet Canadian standards. Uh, then you also have to prove that you have a lot of work experience in your field of work. And then you also have to take a test showing that you were able to understand and speak either English or French uh, you also need to prove that you can support yourself and your family. They, uh, on the website, the Canadian website, for a family of four, they want to see that you have $23,500 of, of available uh, cash in your hands and funds. Plus, on top of that, you've got to pay thousands of dollars as well for fees and documentation, etc., etc., etc. It keeps going on and on. And then on top of that, there's a lot of waiting. In fact, as I was reading this, it, it's, it's, it's no less than a four-year process to become a Canadian citizen. And so it's not easy. In many ways, it's very hard. And, and this happens with most uh, nations around the world. You have to meet certain qualifications to become a citizen of that country. Now, thinking about these requirements, and then we think about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, what kind of qualifications are necessary to becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, as we look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31 this morning, 
as Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples, we're going to see that he's going to lay out some requirements for becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God, a citizen of heaven. And what he's going to reveal through an object lesson of needy children, and then a question from a rich man, and then the response of his disciples, we're going to see that in order to qualify for heaven, you need to understand that you need everything because you bring nothing. You forsake anything because he is everything. I think that's on the PowerPoint there. You need everything because you bring nothing. You forsake anything because he is everything. So starting in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 31, it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Lord, we, th- we need your help this morning. We need your spirit to be actively at work uh, within us, uh, illuminating this scripture to us 
shining the light of the gospel as seen here into our hearts and changing us. Lord, we pray that you would move me aside and that you would speak to your people, speak to truth that they need to hear so that they would be transformed, that we would be transformed, and we would become better worshipers of you and that we would follow you faithfully. Lord, use this to change our hearts, but also to motivate our feet today and to get about the kingdom of God and to see the qualifications necessary. We love you, Lord. Do your work. We ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. So to qualify for heaven, you need everything because you bring nothing. You forsake anything because he is everything. So as Jesus just taught about sin and hell, and then last week he taught about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Today he continues to teach about realities of the kingdom of God, that to truly follow him into eternal life, there is some work yet to do on these disciples' hearts. There's some more work to do on our hearts as well. And so as some children are around him when he is teaching, Jesus takes the opportunity to show compassion to them, And then also to teach crucial truths about qualifications for citizenship in the kingdom of God. And the first qualification we see here is that we need everything. You need everything. You need to embrace your helpless dependency. Verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So as we've already established in the context of Mark, the Jewish And Roman culture at that time didn't elevate children the way we do today. In fact, when it came to to men in particular, children were meant to be seen and not heard. Children weren't given a lot of attention at all. The care of the child was primarily the focus and the responsibility of mothers until the child would come to the age of adulthood, at the ripe old age of 13, But what we see here in this text, we see people bringing their children to Jesus, little children. Why? So that he might touch them. In Jewish culture, it was a a normal practice to bring your new babies to the elders of the synagogue so that they could touch them and they could pronounce a blessing upon them. And so it seems here that those who saw Jesus saw him as a teacher, as a rabbi, as a leader of some sort. And so they were bringing their little children to them, and they were wanting Jesus to bless their children. But again, we see Jesus' disciples here messing things up. Uh, they made the decision on their own to stop these people. The disciples rebuked them, even though they were just previously taught right? They were just taught, just previous to this, about being more accepting uh, to people. But they didn't obviously think that this applied to children. So rather than love and compassion towards these children, 
uh, the societal norms were informing their actions uh, rather than the grace and compassion of the gospel. And so when Jesus saw them doing this, the text says he was indignant. He was indignant, which means he was angry. He was angry at his disciples, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To Jesus, these small children were not to be despised. They were to be loved. When I was a kid, my, I had a special needs auntie. I think I've mentioned her before. She, she makes her way into a lot of anything I think about. She was awesome. But she had this painting in her room, and it was hanging up in her bedroom, and it was a picture of Jesus sitting on a, on a chair or something and holding little children. And he's, he's holding them and he's laughing with them. This painting was her prized possession. She loved it. This is where we get that old Sunday school song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And we see that quite clearly here. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like this child, like these children, they shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on them. And so again, what we're seeing here is Jesus and his compassion towards people that, that his compassion goes beyond the norms of society, that he loves the outcast, he loves the sinner, he loves the lowly, he loves children. And he wants to hold them. These are little image bearers of God. Now, on a bit of a side note, some people have taken Jesus' words here to build a case for uh, salvation of, of little children. Not that I... Don't uh, disagree that little children can be saved when they understand their sin and their need of a Savior. Some have taken this text to argue for child baptism, that, that somehow uh, Christ's touching and blessing and laying His hands on children is some kind of a precedent for child baptism. Again, as I look at this, there's just not enough here to support that. But even more so, when we understand his actions here, in light of his words, in light of the context, we see that Jesus is speaking more than just compassion towards children. Yes, children belong to the kingdom of God, but in verse 15 he says truly, and that means listen up, truly, this is truth, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's his main point here with taking these children. You see, he's using his love for them in light of the disciples' rejection as a teaching opportunity about how his disciples need to approach the kingdom of God. We've seen him doing this throughout the whole Gospel of Mark already. Right, Every healing that we see it reveals his compassion, right? But always more than that, it's teaching of a greater healing that can only be found in Jesus Christ. 
He's always taking earthly examples to teach heavenly truth. So although he sincerely loves these children, when it comes to the kingdom of God, what he's saying is, like these children are approaching me, we need to approach Christ. Like children approach their parents, we need to be approaching the kingdom of God. He says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now the type of children Jesus is talking about here is small children. The the original language is speaking about young children. And so when you think about young children, when you think about their ability to do anything, what comes into your mind? How able are they to do much for themselves in their lives? We have a lot of little babies and little ones in our church, and it's such a blessing Now, when you have babies, they go through various stages of growth, right? Various stages of ability. But when they're really little, like the children he's talking about here, they really have no ability to do anything. No ability to do much at all. They can't burp themselves. They can't dress themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't clean themselves. All the moms say amen. They can't clean themselves and dads too, right? They're they're utterly needy. They are helplessly dependent. They wouldn't survive a few hours apart from parents constantly caring for them. Even when babies start to crawl and and even when they start to, to run around, they still can't go to the bathroom on their own. Uh, They put their clothes on backwards. They can't cook a meal for themselves. They're needy and they're helpless. What Jesus is showing his disciples here and what he's showing us is that if we want to qualify for citizenship in the kingdom of God, we must first embrace our helpless dependency. We need to constantly remind ourselves that apart from Christ, we are helpless and we are needy. We are. We, have, we had no ability to save ourselves. We had no ability to follow Jesus in our own strength. You see, the disciples initially rejected these children because they felt these children didn't qualify for the kingdom of God or to be in Christ's presence. But Jesus wants them to know that they are exactly the type of disciple that he's looking for. One who banks everything on their parents, one who banks everything on their Lord. And so we need to embrace our helpless dependency. Are you embracing your helpless dependency today? Are you banking everything on Christ? Are we pursuing Him like a child pursues their parent? Are we crying out to Him when we're hungry? Are we running to Him when we're hurting or, or when we're scared? Are we following Him when we don't know the way? Friends, the more that we see our helpless dependency, the more we see the amazing grace of God. The more we see our ongoing need for Him every second of every day. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We need everything. Like a child needs everything. We need 
everything from God. And so we need to embrace our helpless dependency. Now in the next scene, Jesus meets a young man, and this young man seems to have it all together. And he's such a stark contrast to these children, these little helpless children. And from his encounter with Jesus, what we're going to see is that that when it comes to kingdom citizenship, we bring nothing. We bring nothing. And we need to examine our spiritual bankruptcy. Verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Then he responds, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. How does he respond? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The other Gospels identify this man as a rich, young ruler. And it seems that he is initially eager, that he's got the right motive, that he's got the right heart. We see him running to Jesus, and he's pleading with Jesus on his knees and asking the most important question that could ever be asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? What's the secret? What's the good news? It seems that he knows that Jesus is the one with the answer. He's convinced by what he's either seen or he's heard about Jesus. And so he throws it all in the line and he seeks the only one who can give him the right answer. The answer that his heart has been longing for. So everything seems to be checking out with this guy. He's seeking answers. He's asking questions that the disciples aren't even asking. It seems that he's eagerly wanting to believe and to follow Jesus. But how he asks and how Jesus responds reveals that there's an issue here. There's an issue with his faith. He asks Jesus, good teacher, right? He's acknowledging that Jesus is a teacher of the truth and that his truth is good. Good teacher, what must I do? Important there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you would expect that Jesus would just jump at this question with a quick answer. This guy seems eager. He seems like he's a seeker of everlasting truth. I mean, just imagine yourself walking through Chinook Mall and some young person comes up to you and and they see you've got a Bible and they're asking you, how do I get to heaven? We'd be eager to answer that question. You'd think that Jesus would jump at this opportunity. It seems that he's seeking the truth. He wants to hear. 
He's basically setting the ball on the tee so that all that Jesus has to do is swing with the gospel. But that's not what he does here. Jesus doesn't respond with sharing the good news of repentance and faith. Instead, he responds with a question. Surprise. Jesus always responds with questions. He sees something deeper. He knows the thoughts of this young man. He knows the secrets of the heart. And so he begins by confronting this man's definition of goodness. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now we have to be careful here. Jesus is not saying that he is not good. We know that Jesus is good and perfect, sinless, righteous. Jesus is good. But what he's questioning is this man's perception of goodness of a rabbi, of a teacher. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus is a teacher of the truth. But he is so much more than that. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the King of Heaven. He is the Creator of the universe. Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for we also see this with our world today. Often people call Jesus a good teacher, but they reject him as God. And so it seems here like the world, this young man is considering Jesus a good religious teacher, but falls short of understanding that he is the Son of God. And that's why Jesus questions his, his use of the term good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here, if you think I'm just a good rabbi, you don't know who I am. Your definition of goodness falls short because no one is good except God alone. So his definition of goodness was all wrong. And then Jesus goes after his heart. Jesus always goes after the heart. He says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. To which the young man responds, teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. He's basically saying, I've kept all of these my whole life. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I challenge you this week, in your workspace or even in your home or at school, Ask those who are around you. Ask, let's, let's, take, let's make it a goal this week to ask 10 people whether they think they're a good person. How many people do you think are going to say that they're a good person? I guarantee that most are going to say that they are good. And then if you ask them, are you good according to God's standard? And then you can walk them through the law, walk them through the Ten Commandments and see that none of us can keep that. Therefore, none of us are good. And so we see Jesus doing that. He's taken him through six of those commandments and this man seems to come out on top. He says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. But Jesus, knowing the depths of his heart, out of love, out of love for this sinner, Jesus goes after the jugular. He hits him hard. Verse 21 says, Jesus, looking at him, 
loved him. If you love someone, and we established this in that sermon on, on hell, if you love someone, you share with them not only the good news, you share them with them the bad news, right? And so Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And he's disheartened by this, and he goes away sorrowfully. Why? Because he had great possessions. So Jesus is going after the hidden sin here. Out of love, he points out this man's worship problem. That even though he is, in quotations, good in many ways, Jesus is showing him that he isn't good. Even though this, this guy is professing to keep much of the law, we have to remember that we are not good. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. His definition of goodness was all wrong. Rabbis are not good. He's not good. What does Romans 3.10-12 say? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not, not even one. No one is good except God alone. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to qualifying for eternal life, we bring nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We need to examine our spiritual bankruptcy and so if you take that challenge that I've given you earlier to go and ask if people are good, with that, I want you to also ask them this week, why should God let you into heaven? How do you think they're going to respond to that? They're going to say, well, I hope God sees all the good things that I've done. Even though I've done bad things, I hope, he, I hope the good things outweigh the bad things. Who does that sound like? That sounds like that young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is religion to the core. This is religion in the negative sense to the core, that it's a set of rules that I need to follow, things that I must keep, things that I must do to gain heaven. You've heard me say this many times. Every other religion apart from biblical Christianity believes in doing good things to inherit eternal life. But true faith is based on what is done by Christ alone. This rich young ruler thought he needed to do more. But the religion of Christ says you can't do anything of any spiritual good. You can't earn God's favor in your flesh. The gospel is that Jesus has done it all through his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Just like the old hymn, Rock of Ages, it informs how we need to be pursuing the Lord. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We need everything because we bring nothing. 
disheartened by the saying, this young man goes away. It says that he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, notice that. This is the connection to the children at the beginning. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When it comes to being a citizen in the kingdom of God, we need to forsake anything. We need to reject our self-sufficiency. As you listen to Jesus' words here, and as the Spirit presses it into your heart, and you hear Him say, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, wealth and possessions are a massive obstacle to being on the road of discipleship towards the kingdom of God. So let's make that abundantly clear here today. This young man just rejected the eternal treasures in heaven for temporary treasures here. He walked away from eternity for the temporary. As good as he looked on the outside and as much as he obeyed the law, his hidden treasure was not the God of the universe. His treasure was his pocketbook. His love of stuff blinded his eyes to complete surrender. He didn't want to sell his possessions and give it to the poor. He loved it way too much. He found his worth in it. He's finding his security in it. He's trusting in it. And what it's ultimately revealing here, that, that his wealth is pointing out an idol of self-sufficiency. His wealth was his hope. Just think about the striking contrast here between these helpless children who are bringing nothing and a man who has everything. Like, like those children, we bring nothing. We need everything. But this man who thinks he has everything ends up with nothing. Heaven doesn't compete with wealth and riches. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Wealth and possessions and things here are so tempting to our covetous hearts. We're so prone to desiring these Things Jesus already said in, in chapter 8, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? And even more than that, we end up putting our trust in these things. 
We end up placing our faith in these things. We end up worshiping the things that are here, seeking them for security, seeking them to satisfy. But the true treasure is in heaven, and it is Jesus Christ. Like children, we need to find our only hope and help in Him. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Just think about that statement. There's a lot of easy beliefism out there. Just add Jesus to your already great life. Jesus says how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know how health, wealth, prosperity, preachers, and congregants can even read this text. How do you read this and go preach a gospel of blessing through temporary riches, stuff, Plains, mansions. When you read verse 25, read it literally. Okay. Think of a camel and then think of a needle. Don't try to explain it away, as some have. The needle is a needle, the camel is a camel. It's absurd. Jesus is saying that it's more likely for this to happen. More likely for a big camel to fit through a needle, the eye of a needle. I can't even thread a needle. It's more likely for him to go through that needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You heard that here, not from me, but from Jesus. We have to heed this warning. We need to be willing to forsake anything, especially wealth, that stands in the way of us following Jesus Christ. We need to reject our own self-sufficiency. The call of Christ is a call to die. It's a call to die to self, a call to die to this world, a call to die to our love of things, things that steal away our affections for Jesus. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And I've seen this play itself out way too many times. I've seen Christians trying to hold on to their faith with one arm and wealth in the other. The problem is, on this side of eternity, wealth promises so much and you can experience right now, it's tangible. And when it comes to our treasure in heaven, we have to wait to fully realize it. I've seen Christians try to have it both ways, but it's very rare. I've seen Christians walk away from their faith because of greed. I've seen brothers and sisters put outside the church because they can't let go of their greed. The love of money. And so as we look into our own hearts today, let's examine. Let's see where maybe some idols of possessions, and it doesn't just have to be money. The context is wealth. But we could be putting our treasure in all kinds of things here. 
What are we always talking about? That will reveal our treasure. And they can steal our joy and our affection away from Christ. Are you putting your hope and your joy in a full bank account? Are you losing sleep because of what you don't have? You know, this what if? What, what if I win the lottery? What if I get that raise? What if I get that promotion? Then I'm going to have more money, and then we're going to be okay. What if the hope in those things are keeping you from the kingdom of God? When it comes to the kingdom of God, you have to be willing to forsake anything and reject your self-sufficiency. So we need everything because we bring nothing and we forsake anything because, last point, he is everything. He is everything. We need to believe in his sovereign ability. Verse 26, the disciples were exceedingly astonished. These disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing. They were hearing that salvation is not easy. Salvation is hard. Hard because it means forsaking anything that can get in the way of Jesus. And so they respond to this. In their exceedingly astonishment, they say to him, then who can be saved? They knew that possessions and self-sufficiency was a massive struggle for everyone including themselves. They just learned again that they they couldn't be good enough to get to heaven. And so they end up asking him, "Then, then, then who can be saved? Can anyone be saved? They realize the truth that in and of themselves, none of us can be saved. None of us have the ability to enter the kingdom of God on our own. None of us deserve to go to heaven. In our flesh, it is completely impossible. And this is exactly where Jesus wants you. This is exactly where he wants us. He wants us to see our sin. He wants us to see the impossibility of our salvation in our own efforts. He wants us to see that when left to ourselves, we have no hope. Because it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we truly realize who Jesus is and how great he is and what he can do. Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. It's impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. You know, when the Lord began to truly transform my heart, over 10 years ago, I was, I was wrestling with how hard it's going to be to follow Jesus. I was wrestling with how I have to turn away from things that are stealing my affections away from God. I was, I was wrestling with how hard it was going to be to put on my cross and follow Him. How am I going to live this life as a Christian? It's going to be too hard to change. It's going to be too hard to truly repent, to truly live for Christ. It's going to be too hard to confess sin to my wife. One day, 
as I was really struggling with this, I used to work out in the oil and gas industry, so I'd drive two hours to work. So I spent a lot of time thinking and listening to sermons. And as I drove home from work one day, I was thinking, I need to go and repent, and I need to tell some things to my wife. I need to change. And so on my way home, I decided to go to a little corner store and uh, buy, a, buy a snack on the way home. And as I, as I paid for my stuff at, at the counter where the, the cashier was, I'm still struggling thinking about how hard it's going to be to follow. And on the counter, I see this little button. You know, a button that you'd wear. And on the button, it said, all things are possible with God. Following him is hard. Being a citizen of heaven isn't easy. In fact, it's impossible in our flesh, right? But what we always have to remember is that all things are possible with God, right? You may think that you're too far gone to be saved. All things are possible with God. You may think that it's going to be too hard. All things are possible with God. You may think that your son or your daughter are never going to come to Christ. All things are possible with God. You may think that you're never going to change. All things are possible with God. You may think this Christian life is impossible. All things are possible with God. Don't be afraid to walk in the way of righteousness. All things are possible with God. Every salvation is a miracle. It's impossible. But all things are possible with God. As I look back on, on my life for the, for the past 10 or so years, I see how the gospel has led our family. It hasn't been perfect. It's led us away from comforts and security. I see at times evil pressing against the church as we're trying to start a church. I see evil pressing against our, our family, our own sin. Uh, I see our marriages uh, under attack. I see sometimes us having no hope. I need to keep remembering, and you need to keep remembering, that all things are possible with God. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He's in control. He is everything. And he is worth losing everything for. So Peter says to him, verse 28, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. When you walk with Christ for the sake of his gospel, he often takes you away from your home. He often takes you away from your comforts. He takes you away from houses and families. Because the gospel isn't stagnant, the gospel moves. And our hearts and our feet need to follow when he calls. Peter's saying, what about us? 
we're following. And Jesus responds that when you faithfully follow, you're not going to walk alone. Yes, you may have walked away from your blood family, but you have a kingdom family. You will receive a hundredfold of what you thought you had. Your faithfulness in the kingdom of God is going to reap an abundant harvest in the days to come. You will be cared for by God. You will be loved by God. You're going to have sisters and brothers and mothers and fathers in the kingdom of God in His church, both now and forever. You will not walk alone. You get to walk side by side through joys and through sorrows and through persecution. We need each other for this. You get to go on the mission of Christ together. Souls are going to be saved. Lives are going to be transformed. God is going to get glorified. When you're saved from your sin, you always have to remember you're saved to the church. This great throng of witnesses, this spiritual family that you get to walk with right now. And in the age to come, eternal life. But, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So those who thought they had it all together, like this rich young ruler, as they are persuaded by their own evil heart and their possessions as they walk away from Christ, he, he ultimately does not inherit eternal life. He inherits eternal death. The first shall be last. But for those who believe like children, those who know their helpless dependency, those who examine their spiritual bankruptcy, those who reject their self-sufficiency and they believe in God's sovereign ability, they will inherit eternal life. The last will be first. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to qualifying for citizenship in the kingdom of God, the truth is, we don't qualify because we have any qualifications. The qualifications is that you don't have any qualifications. There was only one who was qualified. His name is Jesus. And it's because of his perfect, sinless life lived for you. His blood sacrifice on a cross for you. His death for you. And then his resurrecting victory over sin and death for you that you can be qualified. We can be qualified in the blood of Jesus Christ. We can be justified by Him. We can be declared righteous. We can be declared citizens of heaven if we turn away from our sin, turn away from our possessions, and turn to Him to save us. Trusting in Him alone. Following Him into eternal life. Seeking Him to qualify us for the kingdom of God. You need everything because you bring nothing you forsake anything because he is everything <laughs>